Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm your host, Daniel Eisenberg. Technological innovation plays a critical role in healthcare, whether we're talking about MRI and CAT scan machines, electronic medical records, e-prescriptions, or pacemakers. These days, a growing number of startups are focusing on using digital tools to improve the quality and availability of care, especially for chronic conditions that account for a large share of rising healthcare costs. The pandemic has in many cases only increased demand for these kinds of products, as quarantines and lockdowns made services such as telemedicine and remote patient monitoring often the only way to obtain medical or mental health care. On today's episode, we are going to speak with the co-founder and CEO of Sidekick Health, an Iceland-based startup that works with pharmaceutical companies and insurers to provide digital care and therapeutic programs to help patients with disease management. Dr. Trygvi Thorgerson is Sidekick's Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder. He is an experienced physician and researcher with an engineering background. Thorgerson is a guest lecturer at Harvard and MIT on topics including data-driven health and the application of behavioral economics to lifestyle interventions. He is the current chairman of Iceland's Technology Innovation Fund and advises the country's government on innovation strategy and implementation. Trygvi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about what Sidekick Health does and how you came to establish the company. You were a practicing physician earlier in your career, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, So Sidekick develops digital care and digital therapeutics programs. Um, We partner with global pharma companies, global health insurers uh, to uh, work together to improve patient outcomes, uh, improve treatment adherence and, and cost of care. I was a practicing physician. I absolutely loved working as a clinician. But I really felt I didn't have the right tools to approach healthcare in the way that I would have wanted to. One of the things I repeatedly felt was that I was putting out fires that I would have wanted to prevent. So working more downstream than I felt was necessary, largely due to a lack of of, uh, effective tools. Was there one overarching thing in the healthcare system that you viewed Sidekick as a vehicle to solve? Yeah, our current healthcare structure is still um, based on what we created in the last century. Um, lots of brick and mortar, um, really well suited in many cases for acute conditions. But today, uh, up to 80% of our healthcare costs and the majority of our deaths are due to chronic uh, lifestyle-related uh, diseases. And, and to tackle them at the scale that we are doing today, we obviously have to do a much better job at empowering patients to take an active role in their treatment, uh, make much better use of technology so that we just use our very expensive brick and mortar um, institutions, our fantastic uh, professionals in the healthcare industry, that we use them for the most complex uh, cases, but allow people to take much more of an active role in their uh, everyday uh, life uh, at home, outside of the walls of institutions. So, and that's obviously where technology can hugely help us. I mean, we know that to have a, a, a lasting impact on health behaviors and, and really tackle the kind of underlying uh, problems that drive many of our disease burden and costs, we have to have a long-term relationship with patients over uh, you know weeks and months and years. 
And we obviously can't do that within the brick and mortar setup. And so that's where technology can allow us to have those touch points uh, multiple times per day, uh, week by week, month by month, and really have a strong impact there. Digital tools and, and online portals essentially act as that uh, vehicle for engagement, right? In terms of keeping an ongoing relationship with the patient, especially for chronic diseases. Exactly. So if you have a, a chronic condition and we are a platform, we can be applied across quite a, a wide range of different diseases, ranging from uh, inflammation and immunology to cardiovascular and metabolic uh, to oncology and other therapeutic areas. And so if you're a patient with one of these chronic conditions, um, you will receive through your healthcare professional, be it your doctor, your nurse or other professional, uh, access to our patient support program through your smartphone. Through that, we deliver you uh, every week uh, an, a tailored and adapted program that walks you through, you know, how can you better navigate your symptoms? Uh, what are the symptoms to look out for? What are the underlying uh, risk factors that we can help you adjust to uh, have a beneficial impact on your prognosis? That can be things like, you know, helping you quit smoking, uh, exercise more, um, um, you know, w- weight management and such things. And then we help optimize your treatment, better understanding your treatment. Um, are there any side effects that we can help you manage with? And in some cases, we also use uh, remote patient monitoring, which is one of the capabilities on our platform to uh, allow your care team to remotely monitor your symptoms so that we can uh, step in in a much more timely manner. Um, and that's one of the things that our current structure in healthcare isn't doing well enough. You have a chronic addition, you meet your doctor on a predefined schedule. So once a year, you'll have a checkup. Um, but in the meantime, you can have, and just the other day, we picked up a silent heart attack in one of our users where the nurse who was monitoring that patient saw that uh, certain signals were going in the wrong direction, gave that uh, patient immediately a call. This was a, in a remote area, so, so the patient was flown in, admitted to the hospital, and through a, a, a couple of days of admission, uh, was able to turn around the condition as opposed to things deteriorating at home where you might have much worse outcomes, both in terms of health and cost. So that combination of patient support programs, remote patient monitoring, and timely interventions is at the core of what we do. In terms of sort of the the number of therapeutic areas that Sidekick focuses on at this point, tell us a little bit about how you came to make those choices of where to focus your energy. Right. Uh, so, so first of all, we've been in this um, industry for quite some while. We started out eight years ago, started out with, with myself and my colleague, who's also a medical doctor. He was a practicing cardiology at the time and then grew a fantastic team of technology developers, designers, and others with us. I mean, I think it's quite uh, natural to a clinician to start in the cardiovascular space. It's just so clear how supporting people with nutrition, physical activity, mental health, all of this can directly benefit your health outcomes. So, so we did start there and you know, uh, we did research and work in, in obesity, type 2 diabetes. Uh, within cardiovascular, we've been expanding into peripheral artery disease and a few others with our clients and partners. Um, we then uh, started within inflammation and immunology, started out in ulcerative colitis, but then expanded into Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis, and are looking at, the, at a few uh, additional inflammatory conditions. We've recently been uh, expanding into oncology with some of our partners as well. And so that's how our portfolio has been growing uh, from initially cardiovascular to, uh, to cardiometabolic in a wider range, and then into INI oncology and others. This was always the view. I mean, first of all, if you think about it from the patient's perspective, uh, very often patients with chronic conditions have more than one condition, and they definitely don't want two different tools. They, they want a platform where they can 
be supported holistically. Uh, let's say you have, uh, you know, heart disease and you smoke uh, or type 2 diabetes and you're overweight, you, you want programs that tackle these holistically and work together. And so both from the patient's perspective, but also from our partner's perspective, where they really do uh, choose and prefer vendors that can have that broader capability to work across multiple conditions. So that's how that has grown, uh, let's say, organically over the past few years. And what kind of results have you seen in terms of clinical outcomes for the specific uh, areas that you work on? Yeah, um, lots of different types of outcomes um, through different RCT, uh, randomized clinical trials and live data with our partners. Um, we've seen in obesity that people are three times more likely to achieve their weight loss goals when using our platform uh, as opposed to uh, standard care alone. Uh, a study that came out last year in type 2 diabetes where patients were receiving full care and then randomized to uh, additionally be supported by Sidekick. We saw that uh, over a period of, of six months, they saw a very significant drop in HbA1c, which is the long-term blood glucose. And the drop that we saw was not just statistically significant, but clinically significant and translates to about 16% less risk of death from diabetes and about 30% less risk of complications like amputation and blindness. And so really a strong impact on those types of, let's say, hard clinical outcomes. But equally important is we see a positive impact on mental health and quality of life. So for example, in the diabetes study, we saw 40% improvement in a score that measures disease-specific distress, things like do you feel discouraged, alone, um, or depressed about your condition. Um, we also saw a 24% reduction in scores for anxiety and depression in those same patients. Both on the kind of physical side and the mental health and quality of life side, we're seeing really nice impacts uh, across a, a range of outcomes. In terms of your work with uh, global pharma companies, what are the end goals of these deals? How does this work in terms of your chosen business model? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, so first of all, in our experience, pharma have been uh, very clear over the past few years that they are selling outcomes, they're not selling pills. It's all about creating the maximum value. So if you're a pharma company, you might have spent one, two, three billion dollars getting a new drug to the market through all of the different phases of, of development. If you then see that by packaging that uh, traditional uh, therapeutic with a digital therapeutic, it can uh, augment the impact of that therapy, um, there's a huge value in that. Uh, I mean, so improving patient outcomes has a huge benefit, of course, just in, in brand differentiation, uh, competitive standing, more and more uh, also relevant for direct reimbursements for that. And that's one of the interesting evolutions happening in the industry. There are about 300,000 lives lost in Europe and North America alone every year due to lack of treatment adherence. So just helping there is a hugely impactful thing. So a lot of things that, that we can uh, impact uh, direct uh, kind of business outcomes for our partners while improving patient outcomes and cost of care. And all part of what pharma calls going beyond uh, the pill. Whether you're working with pharma or uh, starting to work with payers, insurers, or providers, does it vary in terms of the business model for Sidekick, or is it pretty consistent across those different groups? I could say yes and no. I mean, there's usually both kind of a, a traditional license fee element and then value-based elements, and definitely adapted case by case, and also evolving in the market. I mean, we see really interesting um, evolution going on in the market where um, at least in our experience, we definitely saw that pharma were one of the early adopters in our industry. And so we've really enjoyed working with them over the past several years now. 
but even within pharma, I mean, pharma are huge organizations. You have, you know, the commercial teams, medical, market access. You have the BD, you have the R&D, uh, compliance, regulatory, these different stakeholders within pharma. And even there, uh, you have different levels of adoption. And so, so at least in our case, we started working more with the kind of brand and the commercial units, uh, but we are getting more and more um, interesting dialogues now, uh, let's say more upstream within the drug development process, uh, going into R&D projects where we are uh, doing joint R&D with our pharma partners and then um, aiming for joint marketing of joint R&D, joint clinical trials, and then uh, going to market with a combination therapy of a traditional and a digital therapeutic. And that's tremendously exciting. And, and one of the things that I love seeing kind of evolving in, in our market. As you start to push more into R&D side, and especially clinical trials, how much of a challenge is that for you as an organization? Does that require different skills or capabilities from your end? Yeah, we have done uh, research projects already, RCTs and different types of projects, uh, be it uh, phase three clinical trials, phase four clinical trials. So we have experience and strong uh, clinical research team uh, in addition to the product development team. Adapting the product and adapting the approach for this setting is quite straightforward to us. Of course, there are interesting considerations in terms of the setup and the end goal of how you set up these projects. Lots of interesting dialogues on how to uh, set up the trials with all of these stakeholders in mind. And how much are you pushing into working with payers and insurers, or even providers at this point? So when we sat down a few years ago, our feeling was pharma were, in our view, um, the early adopters in taking solutions like this uh, to scale. So, so lots of pilots going on with payers, providers, pharma. We really decided to focus on pharma and we really uh, enjoyed the benefits of working with pharma partners on so many levels. One of the things at least we have been experiencing over the past uh, basically 12, 18 uh, months, uh, and even just six months, uh, an acceleration in the kind of marketplace, uh, especially when it comes to payers. Uh, and payers are becoming much more serious at scaling uh, these types of tools. Obviously, the benefits for payers of scaling these tools is tremendous, uh, both in terms of their patient outcomes and cost of care as well. So there's a lot happening there, really interesting things that we hope to be able to announce uh, in uh, within a few months. Just a huge acceleration that we've found in terms of the payer space. Uh, and COVID has definitely accelerated the pace there. Let's talk briefly about COVID in terms of the impact on your business. Um, obviously, there was a, a real impact we've seen and read about generally in terms of uh, telemedicine and remote monitoring and, and virtual appointments with providers. How has it impacted your business or business model at all? And what changes has it, you know, caused in any of your core offering or go-to-market or anything like that? I'd say that the biggest change was just this uh, overall acceleration that we see in our market. So things were moving fast, uh, you know, rapid growth. Uh, but with COVID, um, our view was and our feeling is that Many aspects of the market have jumped forward by, I'd say, two or three years. Everyone has been forced to use digital tools in all aspects of their lives to a greater extent. So patients have been using more digital tools. Uh, providers and clinicians have been introduced to them in increasing levels. And so, so everyone's uh, kind of readiness ha has overall increased, and we, we definitely see that. And I'd say especially uh, from the provider space where, as I said, clinicians and providers are using uh, these tools and kind of 
becoming more ready to scale them as well. Earlier on in the epidemic uh, last year, there was a short-term slowdown where our pharma partners, for example, just didn't have the access to clinics uh, naturally, of course, that they had previously had. So there was a cool down in distribution for a few months, which has been slowly resolving after that. And in terms of our product, one of the things that we definitely did uh, um, emphasize more over the past year is remote patient monitoring. So, so a lot of need, obviously, for that throughout the pandemic being able to remotely track your patients who, who aren't able to come in for their checkups as previously, to be able to monitor symptoms um, uh, through PROs, through integrations with devices, um, bring that up on, on a dashboard, which in some cases is monitored by our care managers, but in other cases integrated into the dashboards and EHRs with our provider uh, partners. You did quite a bit of COVID in Iceland, in your home country, right? Working with the whole national COVID strategy. Yeah, yeah. So in our home country of Iceland, I mean, we are a small island in the uh, North Atlantic Ocean, so things are different here from larger uh, countries. So, so we were able to have a a, a kind of centralized, uh, let's call it the call center approach, where there was just one division at the National University Hospital who uh, remotely monitored and, and supported all COVID nineteen patients in Iceland. So anyone with a confirmed diagnosis went on to the roster of this department and was remotely supported initially through phone calls by a fantastic team of nurses and doctors who were remotely supporting them. Uh, what we felt when this was happening was uh, our technology could definitely, in our view, help. Um, and so we offered our assistance and were able to help there so that uh, patients with COVID-19 received um, a COVID-19 uh, program in their phones with the clinicians. We had doctors, uh, nurses, uh, physiotherapists, and a psychologist talking to the patients about, you know, what are the symptoms to look out for, how to manage the stresses of being in home isolation with COVID-19 and, and these kinds of things, and, and daily uh, entering in their symptoms through a, a you know, PRO, patient reported outcome form in the app. And then we had a dashboard for the clinicians where you can see day by day how the symptoms are evolving. Uh, and with a large team of expert clinicians, we decided on a risk score so we can see if a patient is scoring you know, um, green, yellow, or red. And, and then flag for action if anyone needs uh, early intervention. And so throughout this monitoring system here in Iceland, both through the phone calls and through our platform, um, we have had uh, really good results in terms of low mortality rates, uh, low ICU admission rates, and those types of things. And that's largely because of early interventions. And you can see if you have this structure in place, there's so much you can do. I mean, just simple things like if you see through the symptoms that a person at home is becoming dehydrated, um, you know, really uh, fatigued and tired, maybe nausea and vomiting. Um, you can pull them in, uh, in many cases, out into the outpatient clinic, give them medication to stop the vomiting, give them, uh, you know, IV fluids uh, and send them back home, as opposed to they might stay for two additional days at home. Um, and due to the dehydration, they might go into a, a renal failure and, and need ICU admission in a very serious state. So by remotely monitoring and supporting you, you can really... Um, in many cases, turn things around uh, in a much more timely fashion. It makes such perfect sense because one of the aspects of COVID was, of course, that folks in many countries and cities, you were told not to come in to a healthcare setting or certainly the hospital unless you had reached a certain point in your own self-monitoring. Many folks really felt at sea a little, right? They felt sick, but they didn't know how sick they were and whether they should travel to, to a hospital or should they just try to ride it out. Absolutely. I just wanted to move a little bit and talk about the customer experience with Sidekick. One of the key attributes of what you guys offer is sort of gamification on many of your portals. 
Can you talk a little bit about the origins of that, uh, how you came to take that approach and um, how you think it helps in retention and engagement? Yeah, absolutely. So back in 2008, 2009, I was working as a clinician, as I said, I really wanted to be able to uh, approach things a little differently. So I applied to the Harvard School of Public Health, um, enrolled in 2010 into a master's uh, MPH program, master's in public health, focusing on preventive medicine, public health. Uh, and, and what really became my focus there was we have so much research on, you know, what are the risk factors, you know, should we do this diet or that diet, but much less research on what are the behavioral methods to better help people change their habits, stick to their programs. And so at Harvard, I really focused in on that. And I had a fantastic mentor, uh, Professor Ichiro Kawachi. And with him, I looked into a field called behavioral economics, which combines psychology and economics to really explain what are the drivers behind our choices and our health behaviors. We have these two different parts of the brain. Uh, we have the emotional impulsive part, and then we have the rational part. And while we definitely think we are quite rational beings, we really aren't. Uh, 80% of our choices or so are controlled by the emotional impulsive uh, lizard brain, if you will. So if we are going to help people nudge them into better uh, habits, we have to be able to talk to both. And in my view, for decades, the industry, whether it's uh, food producers, advertisers, computer games, have been talking to our impulsive emotional brain centers, whereas healthcare has been a little bit more focused on our rational side and, and kind of losing that battle for a few decades. And and that really kind of lit some light bulbs. And this became just a passion for me to do better there. And when I started looking at how can I deliver these types of interventions and use these behavioral principles with technology, it was just so logical to look at the gaming industry who really have mastered the art of hijacking our dopamine system to keep us engaged and retained in their games. And, and there's just so many principles from there that we can use in a positive manner. Because again, to have a clinical impact, we have to be able to work with people for months on end. So that's where we can use these, uh, these tools and tricks of the gaming industry trade. Here in Iceland, we have one uh, large gaming company. We have a few uh, smaller, really strong, interesting gaming companies, but one large global uh, gaming company called CCP Games with a game called EVE Online. And we've had really great collaboration with that company. Um, they even gave us access to some of the developers throughout COVID to help us accelerate our COVID solution. And we've been able to uh, work with some great talent from that company and others uh, in terms of injecting those gamification skills and having a strong gaming element in the solution. Through that, we've been able to see really fantastic engagement and retention numbers um, uh, for long term. That is core to us to be able to have a strong clinical impact. The behavioral economics field is obviously one that the, the over the last decade or decade and a half has taken on such prominence and whether it's understanding of, you know, markets or consumer behavior, it's really cool to see how you've been able to incorporate that. One question on top of that is, do you guys know how much folks use your product, a sort of smartphone type device versus um, a laptop or desktop? Um, and I ask that partially because obviously smartphones, uh, as I know from my own kids, <laughs> have this dopamine uh effect too, like gaming, even if they're not playing games, the smartphones have caused us all to, to sort of constantly be checking it. Uh, so I would think that would actually really help with retention and engagement with your kind of a product. Precisely. So that was a design decision precisely with this in mind that we decided that the patient support programs, we would focus on delivering them through smart devices. And that's both 
as you pointed out, uh, due to retention engagement, that part of things, but also obviously the sensors that we get with the phone. So we can, our patients can use the phone's camera to create a food journal. We use the GPS, the step counter, a host of sensors already in the phone that we can use for the programs. And then we can import from devices through the phone. Uh, so, so to us, this, the smartphone is really the home of the patient support program. And of course, the tablet computers as well. For the healthcare professional, we have our care management portal accessed through web. So that's how we split that, really focusing on the smart devices for the patients. And one of the things that is also changing rapidly is the age of users of smart devices is always going up. I mean, one of our more recent patient populations is in a disease called peripheral artery disease, where you have narrowed arteries into your legs. And there we have a median age of patients of 72 years old. And so we definitely see that patients, uh, you know, up to 80 plus years old are able to use technology if it's designed for easy accessibility. I was going to actually ask you about your demographics. Do you have a broad sense of how it breaks out in terms of your customer base, in terms of age, or does it vary so much depending on who you're working with and which therapy you to carry yeah. out? The biggest driver is the type of disease that we're focusing on. So in some diseases, we have younger adults. In others, it's mostly over 65. I think our average age is around 44 uh, or so of our users. There is a, a slight majority of female users, and that's what you see in any type of disease management programs. We have to do a better job at, at uh, engaging with our male patients in healthcare in general, uh, uh, male patients often are a little bit too late to, to come into uh, preventive measures and checkups and such, but uh, that, that's another part where gamification can really help. Let's shift gears briefly and talk a little bit about the regional view of your business and the sector. You've obviously expanded meaningfully in Europe. How have you navigated the process of dealing with different regulations in various countries um, as opposed to you know a single country like Iceland? Well... Uh... Luckily, over the past years, many of these things have become a little bit more centralized. So you have obviously GDPR in, uh, in Europe and HIPAA in the US. And to be a serious player in, in this field, you have to have all of that covered. And then in many cases, there are definitely um, at the country level, other considerations. And so that's just part of the game. If you are going to be delivering healthcare solutions in, in multiple countries, um, you have to be able to do that. And, and, and maybe that's one of the benefits of having European roots as a company. We have had to learn to do uh, what we call, you know, country hopping in, in Europe. So going from one country to the next. And what we do is we create uh, global level programs. So let's say a, a core IBD program, which we work with global level experts to create. But then when we go to a, a, an individual country, we work with uh, local experts in that country, typically uh, patient associations, uh, physicians and nurses and other experts, making sure that we comply with local you know, culture, local clinical guidelines, and of course, regulatory uh, uh, compliance as needed and translate that. And, and we've created a process where we can do that pretty efficiently uh, going from one country to another. And that, that, that's also another driver of retention and engagement. The user has to see that this is locally relevant for that user. And so... A small example, when we localized going from Switzerland to Austria, um, we found out that we had to revoice our videos so that we had voiceovers in our videos in Swiss German versus Austrian German accent. Um, and even those small details can really uh, have an impact on how relevant the patient uh, feels that the solution is for them. On the European health tech scene, 
How do you see it evolving? And when you view it and compare it to the U.S. market, what you might see as future opportunities for yourself in the health tech scene in the U.S.? Yeah, there are certain obvious big differences in the U.S. where you have a, a kind of a bigger focus within the health tech market on, for example, the big self-insured em- employers. Um, you have, of course, the private large health insurers um, and providers. And that comes, I guess, with pros and cons. I mean, there is, to a certain degree, more agility in that system. So once those private, for example, payers decide to move fast, they definitely can put a lot of weight behind that. And so there are interesting developments obviously happening within Europe, like with DICA and the Digital Healthcare Act in in Germany. I just see interesting uh, evolution happening on all sides. Do you see other folks trying to um, use the gamification approach or do you do you still feel like you have a pretty good lead in that area? We do feel we have uh, quite a unique um, uh, look and feel and a unique approach really focusing on this. And there's one thing injecting, kind of sprinkling a bit of gamification over a solution versus kind of designing from the ground up, always with this in mind, uh, making sure that we are talking to the right brain centers, that we are um, using uh, all of the best practices in game design and using all of the aspects of the technology in, in our advantage. So we have uh, quite a nice niche in our view there in terms of our approach. And to us, it's always this balance of being uh, a serious medical device, serious uh, uh, player within healthcare, but also having that consumer grade uh, technology and game design as well. So yeah, we feel pretty good in where we sit there, plus uh, other things like the breadth of the platform, being able to target so many different types of diseases very effectively. That's another uh, unique selling point uh, that is quite important to our partners. Let's talk briefly uh, about your expansion journey. What were some of the barriers you faced in your efforts to scale and any lessons you learned along the way? It takes time. And that's where digital therapeutics are quite different from many other digital um, parts of the landscape. I mean, um, to be able to really go to market with a solution uh, like ours, you have to have a large, robust platform. Uh, You have to have all of the compliance and regulatory issues handled very thoroughly. And you have to have robust clinical trials under the belt to, to prove that the solution is working. And so you either have to have very strong funding from the get-go or be able to uh, build your way towards that. So it wasn't until we released our first clinical findings back in 2017 that things started to really ramp up for us. It is a long haul. You have to have a great team and very strong and patient uh, investors who share your vision and work your way to, towards uh, all of that. And then navigating towards a, a business model that you feel is, is scalable and makes sense to your technology and your approach. And were there things that surprised you? Anything that was either more difficult or easier than you expected? I'd say not so many things were easier. Building a company and finding your foot and growing and scaling is always going to be hard work. Uh, just you know, blood, sweat and tears uh, throughout the whole journey. So it's going to be difficult. There's going to be interesting problems to solve and there's going to be a lot of hard work. It takes a bit longer and more work than you might have initially thought, but it's incredibly enjoyable and rewarding, obviously, once you hit your stride and you you start being able to grow, because that also allows you to do so many things. In our case, there are so many things that that we've really wanted to do with a product that that now, as we grow, we're able to do more and more. Is there any particular 
advice you would give to early stage entrepreneurs in, in your space in terms of trying to scale and accelerate growth um, that you haven't sort of mentioned and that we haven't discussed? Well, one of the things that is really essential is that you don't get overly caught up in your technology, but you also from day one, think about your business model. So it's not enough to just have a really fantastic technology, uh, a great product. You have to make sure that you are, are pretty clear on who's going to be using it, who's going to be paying for it. What is the competition like? So matching that, um, not just going out, uh, building a product, if you're not quite sure how we're going to harness that product. And so just matching that, you, you have to have a strong passion for your product, but make sure that you or your team jointly have a, a clear view on the path needed towards commercialization. And it's obviously such a complicated space, so many different stakeholders that you need to work with and through. You can't just assume that a cool tech is going to get you directly to the users out there, right? You really have to navigate a complex system to get there. Exactly. And so it's going to take time. It's going to take funds and a great team because it's a pretty complex industry that we are working in. And so that's just part of the equation. Let me just ask you, on the fundraising angle, I think you guys actually may have raised some funding during the past year, uh, during COVID. Did that feel different in any way from how you might have expected? I don't know if you were able to actually meet in person with folks that were considering investing in you or everything had to be virtual. How did that experience go uh, amidst COVID? Our experience was in the, let's say, opening weeks. We had just started fundraising when COVID hit. In the opening weeks uh, of COVID, there was obviously kind of hesitancy and people were you know, leaning back and thinking about what's the impact going to be. But then what we saw was the investors who are deep in the space, uh, they actually leaned in and they saw in the medium to long term, this is just going to accelerate our, our market. The format was definitely different. Uh, I mean, we didn't meet our investors face to face until in the absolutely final stages of a process when everything was more or less um, you know, clear, then we set up an in-person meeting. And so it was quite interesting how far you can go with this process uh, completely remotely by necessity. That worked fine. We raised a $20 million round um, led by two new investors, uh, Wellington Partners uh, and Asapis Partners, joining our current investors, uh, FirmTag Ventures and Novator Partners. Also really happy with how, how that turned out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that kind of more remote approach, at least for the early parts of meetings and fundraising um, opportunities, if some of that uh, uh, lasts even after COVID. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping some of that will stick. <laughs> Just a couple of last questions. In terms of, you mentioned GDPR um, and HIPAA, how much of an issue has it been at all getting buy-in actually from consumers? Is there any hesitancy in terms of issues of, of data privacy? Well, I do think consumers are much more knowledgeable and guarded uh, in terms of their data than they have been previously. Um, and that's good. Uh, and people like us need to be on our toes, making sure that we do everything completely right and that we communicate that with our users. So I think all of this evolution has been really needed, is a great framework in my view. If we are doing it correctly and if we convey that to users, then we have uh, earn people's trust, and that's been our experience. And when you look ahead for Sidekick, say three to five years from now, do you have a vision of where you are at that point and what you've achieved or are hoping to achieve within that time frame? 
in the next three to five years, um, it's not going to be acceptable anymore that people with a chronic condition leave their doctor's office without a digital companion to help empower them and support them to actively participate in their treatment and to remotely connect with their clinical team. So we see this as being a completely integrated part of receiving care that you can have a, a digital layer to that optimize so many parts of your treatment. And, and our vision is to be a, a central global uh, partner for that, uh, impacting patients on a global scale, uh, improving health and quality of life, and making better use of resources in the healthcare industry. And that's what we're working towards. That's a great final note to, to leave on. I want to thank you, Dr. Trigby Thorgerson of Sidekick, uh, for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Uh, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning into McKinsey on Startups, and I hope you'll return for future episodes. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.